In July 1984, a man broke into the apartment of Jennifer Thompson in Burlington, North Carolina, and raped her at knife point. During the assault, the assailant said, shut up or I'll cut you. Later that same night, the perpetrator broke into another apartment in the same neighborhood and raped another woman. Jennifer immediately called the police after the assault, and she was taken to the hospital where a rape kit was collected. After the exam, she went to the police station, where she provided a police artist with a description of her attacker. A week later, Jennifer returned to the police station to view a lineup. Rather than photos in a book or men behind a one-way mirror, Jennifer sat across the table from six men, each who recited, shut up or I'll cut you. During the lineup, Jennifer picked number five, a man named Ronald Cotton. He was the same age as she was, and she told officers she was certain he was her attacker. The second victim also went to the police station for a lineup. However, she chose a different individual. Ronald Cotton had been in trouble with the law previously and served 18 months for attempted sexual assault. While he did not deny having sexual contact with the victim in that case, he said the contact had been consensual. Cotton was arrested and charged with the crimes on August 1, 1984. At trial, Jennifer testified that she was certain Ronald Cotton had been the one who had raped her. The jury was not allowed to hear that the second victim failed to identify Cotton during the lineup, and Cotton was convicted of one count of rape and one count of burglary in January 1985. He was sentenced to life in prison. Approximately one year after his conviction, Cotton was working in the prison kitchen where he met another inmate named Bobby Poole. Poole, who was also serving time for sexual assault, began bragging to the other inmates that Cotton had been convicted for one of the crimes Poole committed. While this enraged Cotton and he briefly thought about killing Poole in retaliation, he ultimately decided to pursue legal recourse instead. Cotton appealed his case and North Carolina overturned his conviction stating the jury should have heard that the second victim did not identify Cotton as her assailant. Having won a second trial, Cotton was certain he would be acquitted. During the second trial, Cotton was again charged with both rapes. Jennifer again testified she was certain Cotton was the one who raped her. Although the second victim had not identified Cotton shortly after the attack, during the trial she also testified she was certain Cotton was the one who sexually assaulted her. Even though Cotton and several others heard Poole state he was actually the one who committed the crimes, the judge would not allow this evidence to be admitted. In November 1987, Ronald Cotton was again convicted of both assaults and again sentenced to life in prison. While he continued to appeal his conviction, he was unsuccessful. In spring 1995, the samples which had been taken from Jennifer's rape kit were examined using new DNA technology, which had only recently become available. These results were conclusive. Ronald Cotton was not the one who sexually assaulted Jennifer Thompson. Instead, Bobby Poole's DNA was identified. He had been the assailant just as Cotton had claimed. In May 1995, the district attorney and Cotton's defense attorney requested all charges be dismissed. And on June 30, 1995, after spending 11 years in prison for crimes he did not commit, Ronald Cotton was released. Jennifer Thompson was deeply remorseful for mistakenly identifying Cotton. She wrote to Cotton shortly after she received the news he was innocent. The two met and Jennifer apologized profusely for her mistake. Cotton forgave her, stating they were both victims. 
They remained in touch, and in 2010, the two released a book they co-authored called Picking Cotton, Our Memoir of Justice and Redemption. Both continue to be advocates who caution about the reliability of eyewitness testimony. This episode is about the wrongful conviction of Ronald Cotton. Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. David, I can't believe we're already at the season finale for season three. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's always bittersweet when we wrap up a season. Yeah. I know I'm looking forward to devoting some time to working on some other projects that I have going on. But I also miss working on the podcast during our downtimes. Yeah, no, I do too. Um, but I think it's important that we do take a break, you know, so we can come back stronger, bring and continue to bring people the good content, the yeah. stuff that we like to talk about and stuff that like people like hearing about. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, we wanted to end the season with a compelling case. And I think Ronald Cotton's case really fits the bill. What a tragedy all around. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Jessica. I wasn't really sure which direction you were going to go on this, but once you started talking about the eyewitness thing, it made perfect sense to me. I know that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable because you told me about it. What I mean is we've had many conversations about this when watching true crime documentaries and such, including how we fill gaps in our memory with images that can often be false. Ever since learning about this from you, I've used this example um, from my own life when making a point to the inmates in my substance abuse program. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about some of that later on in the episode. Yeah. So one of the major tools we use in substance abuse treatment from the CBT model or cognitive behavioral therapy model is something called a rational self-analysis or an RSA for short. Basically, the RSA works by plotting out side by side how different ways a triggering event can be interpreted and responded to based on how we perceive the trigger and what our core beliefs dictate about it. So let's say that someone cuts you off on the road. We use this example all the time, right? Because it happens all the time. Because it happens all the time, <laughs> especially in this city. Uh, the traffic's just gotten horrible. But this is definitely a triggering event. While some people may become enraged and escalate the situation, others seem unaffected. Why is this? Well, this has to do with the core beliefs of each person. If I assign intention to the act, I am more likely to believe that the person cutting me off did so intentionally to spite me, pick on me, or whatever. If, however, you believe that the act was just a careless maneuver by someone in a rush, our hurry, then you will be much less likely to escalate the situation, but rather simply let it go and continue on your way. 
An RSA is to write out side by side two different ways of responding to the trigger event and play the scenario out to the potential consequences of each of them. For me, because I believe the event was personal and then sought to escalate the situation, I might suddenly be in the middle of a dangerous situation with someone else in another car. Maybe we pull over, get into a fight, cops show up, and well, there goes the day. You, on the other hand, because your beliefs about the situation were different, resulted in you letting it go, getting to work safely, and getting on with your day. Well, obviously, your way was better because it led to better consequences. The RSA is to show, in very clear terms, incarcerated individuals how old patterns of thinking and old beliefs no longer serve them, and how adopting more pro-social beliefs can lead them to better outcomes in their lives. And, you know, this tool, I mean, you're talking about using it with inmates and, and the rational self-analysis is the name of like the, the form that you use with them. But this is really a very um, basis for CBT therapy. And so anyone who's ever seen a CBT therapist, often their therapist will have them do this same exercise. They may not call it an RSA. They may call it like the ABCs um, or some other term, but it's it's very widely used. Yeah, and it's amazingly simple of a concept, but simple does not equal easy. Right. So that's that's really the sort of power of CBT is that and what makes it so effective is that it's an incredibly simple thing to learn, but yet it can be very very powerful in how you change your daily behaviors. Okay, so still with me. One of the ways that we encourage people to begin an RSA is to do something we call a camera check. Basically, this means looking at the situation as if through a video camera. What did the camera see? This technique is to get people to slow down their thinking a bit and really think through what they saw in the triggering event without adding any of our judgments or emotional baggage to it. In other words, we are trying to be as objective about the situation as possible rather than subjective about it. Of course, we're human beings, so we really can't be completely objective, but we always strive to be more objective than we generally are in the day-to-day. And when I say objective, I really mean just accepting the situation for what it is, no more, no less. Sounds easy, but it's not. The concept is exceedingly simple, but definitely not easy. And this is because, as humans, we carry our preconceived notions, beliefs, experiences, prejudices, etc. around with us, often hindering our ability to be objective. At any rate, the more objective we can be about a triggering event, the more likely we are to make decisions on how to react to it by taking all of the facts into account rather than anything superfluous. You know, the stuff we don't need. Being able to see a situation clearly can completely change how we perceive a situation, which changes our beliefs about it and our choices for how we react to it. And our emotions about it, too. Yeah. Potentially, right? Yeah, absolutely. Can completely change the way we feel about a situation. So this really makes us think about how we perceive what is happening around us and to us. We really do make a lot of mistakes in our perception by not taking the time to examine if we are truly being as objective as possible when examining the situation. And this plays into so much as it pertains to eyewitness testimony, as you pointed out earlier. To underscore your point, I'll tell a quick story uh, about a time when I witnessed my neighbor's house being cased, so to speak, by some shady characters. As I was leaving for work one day, I happened to notice two men sitting in a car in front of my neighbor's house. Well, you know, being law enforcement and not recognizing the car or the men, I took a closer look. 
I noted the car make and model and color. I even took a mental, so to speak, snapshot of the license plate that I wrote down a little later on a pad of paper I kept in my car for just such occasions. Anyway, I left for work, and when I got back, I found out that, sure enough, my neighbor's house had been burglarized. The next day, I walked over to my neighbors and introduced myself and told them that I had information for them to help them with the investigation if they needed it. So they got me in contact with the detective in charge of handling their case. A few days later, I went down to the local precinct to give a statement to the detective. So what followed was actually kind of humorous as I managed to pretty much screw up the whole thing. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) So first off, I found out that I got the model of the car wrong. I got the correct color and the correct make, but the model was off. Second, I wrote down the wrong license plate number. As it turned out, the detective had to play around with the letters and the numbers, which is something I guess they will do when they have a general idea of the kind of car they're looking for, and he was able to find the car and impound it. The worst part, however, was the photo lineup where, you guessed it, I picked the wrong guys. And this is from someone who is in law enforcement and trained to be observant. I mean, I really wanted to help my neighbors catch these idiots and thought that I could be the hero of the day by helping them out. So it was kind of disappointing to realize that what I thought I saw was completely off. I thought I could help nail these guys, but as it turned out, I didn't see what I thought I did. And that is so often the case. Yeah. So you know what actually caught these guys who broke into the house, Jessica? What? DNA. Ah. Yeah, one of them cut himself while inside the house and uh, left a nice little blood sample on the floor for the cops. But again, we have an objective scientific method catching the criminal. Whereas the eyewitness, me, here, couldn't catch the thieves if I tried to nuke the whole city. So humbling to say the least. Yeah. (laughs) At any rate, my rational brain wasn't functioning as well as it should have at that moment when I saw these guys on my block. So there is a lot of credence to what you are arguing about how easy it is to wrongfully convict someone, especially as it relates to how we form memories of faces and events. So the other part I wanted to talk about in terms of being wrongfully accused and convicted of a crime has to do with the psychology of being tried in a court of law for something that you know you're innocent of and then being convicted and then having to be incarcerated for this time and what it does to those who have had this experience. So as you know, Jessica, my research focus has been on prisonization and how it affects men who have been incarcerated for long periods of time. But I got especially interested when I found some scholarly literature on the psychology of being incarcerated for a long period of time, all the while knowing that you are, in fact, innocent of the crime. This adds a whole new dimension to the equation, which brings forward some pretty interesting psychology. For instance, Leslie Scott with the American University Criminal Law Brief wrote a piece in 2010 where she examines the psychological impact of being wrongfully convicted, and it was fascinating. And, of course, we'll have a link to this on our website. I mean, we all think that once someone who has been wrongfully convicted is later exonerated, that everything is now right in the world. But this is rarely the case, as the trauma of being incarcerated, to include prisonization, has now become a part of the exoneree's life. Many times, those who are exonerated after being wrongfully convicted are treated just as poorly as any other person who has been released from prison. Wow. Yeah. Scott makes this point that exonerees have many of the same problems that released convicts have to include trouble readjusting to the outside world and basic things like finding employment. 
They still have to answer yes to the have you been convicted of a felony question, which can negatively mark them to employers, many of whom do not recant after finding out that the person has later been exonerated of that crime. That seems crazy to me, that yeah. they have to mark that they've been convicted even though they've been exonerated. Like, right. that just seems wrong. Yeah, I, I, that, that blew me away. Yeah. I had no idea that that was the case. Now, I could talk for days on how prisonization works, but the easiest way to describe how a person's values change through prison time comes from the statement that Morgan Freeman's character in the movie The Shawshank Redemption says when he's talking about the older man in the movie, a character named Brooks. Morgan Freeman says, quote, These walls are funny. At first you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes and you start to depend on them. In a more recent movie, Shot Caller, which came out in 2017, this also explored how our values can change when presented with an incredibly challenging situation like incarceration. Anyway, prisonization is something that I have to challenge every single day. This is a huge part of the work that I do in the prison system as the men there are preparing for release. I ask them routinely, are you training to be convicts or are you training to be free men? The training must reflect the ultimate goal, in other words, and if they want to be pro-social freemen, they have to stop thinking like convicts or inmates and start thinking like freemen. Okay, so that's a huge part of what I do in the prison system. But for those who are genuinely wrongfully convicted, the normal challenges of anyone who is incarcerated seem to become even more stressful. In the article I was just talking about by Leslie Scott, she references some work done by John Wilson who was a professor of psychology at Cleveland State University, who has also studied the psychology of wrongful convictions in depth. He stated that what makes the wrongfully convicted so different is that they know they are different from others when they enter into the correctional system, and generally, they don't have the same criminal personality issues that others may have. This often leads to what Wilson calls permanent scars on the person's soul as they endure being thrown into an environment where the vast majority of people are, in fact, criminals who carry themselves as such, including all of the antisocial values that accompany that lifestyle. Professor Wilson goes on to describe nine distinct feelings that the wrongfully accused, convicted, and incarcerated will often go through as they make their way through the process before they are exonerated. This process starts off as feelings of shock and disbelief that the system could fail them so spectacularly. Next comes feelings of rage and a sense of injustice as they dwell on the wrongfulness of the situation and as they start to fear death and abuse while in the prison system as well as the idea that they may never get out. Wilson argued that this causes permanent damage to the individual. As the victim here continues to move forward through their incarceration, they start to feel as if the act has been an assault on their personhood, which begins to challenge their sense of identity. As time passes, they start to search for some kind of meaning in their plight, after which many have described what Wilson calls a, quote, soul death, or a feeling that they have been abandoned by humanity and by God, which in turn nurtures a deep sense of distrust in, well, everyone. After this comes the loss of identity and dignity, or a, quote, coming undone, so to speak, whereby the victim struggles to maintain an identity that was formed before being incarcerated as it is slowly replaced by the new incarcerated identity. This causes feelings of cognitive dissonance as these identities start to clash with each other. Here, 
Wilson says they start to suffer a loss of self-esteem and dignity as they begin to see themselves as no longer worthy of respect or love from others. Lastly, guilt and shame become the norm as these people live in an environment that every day tells them that they are guilty of a crime. They start to feel shame for being victimized by the system, and this in turn leads to fatigue for continually claiming their innocence to no avail as their appeals slowly grind through the court system. Often at this stage, to stay sane, those who are wrongfully incarcerated will start to structure their time in order to develop routines that help pass the time. At this point, in my opinion, they have become prisonized. Professor Wilson goes on to also talk about how this process continues to affect those who have wrongfully been convicted even after they have been exonerated. This, as I talked about before, can involve post-traumatic stress disorder, OCD issues, phobias, paranoia. These are all common. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine. Like, you know, it makes me almost think of, you know, when you're describing what it's like for someone to have a delusion, right, where they're telling everybody that something is the case and everyone is telling them that they're wrong. Right. And it seems to me that it would probably feel similarly to be wrongfully convicted. Yeah. You know, here you are, you're telling everybody, I did not do this. And that is the objective truth. And like most people aren't believing them, you know, and, and it's like you hope that you come across somebody at some point who's willing to take it seriously. But yeah, I can see how that would be so damaging to a person's you know, mental health. Well, so I started to put that in the context of the work that I do because a big part of the treatment for substance abuse and criminal behavior is getting them to accept full responsibility for their actions. So what happens if, you know, I'm doing the work that I'm supposed to do, but I'm pushing this on somebody who's actually innocent of a crime, who's never really done what I'm telling them that they need to take responsibility for in order to move forward? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very good point. No, I don't think that that's common, but I have to admit to myself that it definitely is a possibility that this could have happened in the past and can can happen in the future sure you know as part of our system and it and our system being flawed sure so another professor at the university of cambridge named adrian t grounds has also done some significant research into this phenomena and stated that the five issues he most sees as a result of wrongful convictions and incarceration include enduring personality change other psychiatric disorders psychological slash physical suffering readjustment issues, and PTSD, such as symptoms like nightmares of assaults and other violence, panic attacks, constant edginess, hesitation to be in public, and crippling fear about being rearrested. Wow. I mean, wow. Yeah. I've never taken the time, and I have to admit this, to even consider this side of the equation and how our justice system can wreak this kind of havoc on someone who is innocent. You know, as with the Central Park Five episode we did a while back and the special that Oprah Winfrey produced about their story, it's sort of like, well, now they're exonerated and they got paid a lot of money. All is right in the world, right? But this research is saying, no, many times the exonerated have come out of prison to face even more challenges. I'll be honest when I say that this research certainly adds more to the conversation that we've been having for a while now which is how the practice of law enforcement is going to move forward 
and evolve in response to contemporary issues of crime, poverty, and race. So yeah, this added a whole new angle to the conversation, in my opinion. So, you know, and I was not expecting that when you had brought up this as an idea for this episode. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of a complex issue, and it does bring kind of some different aspects to it, things to think about. And, you know, you're talking about some of the flaws with our justice system. And so, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, which you alluded to earlier, is this whole idea of eyewitness testimony. You know, I think most people would say that the very best evidence is eyewitness testimony. Well, and and like I said in in the beginning of the episode, that's something that you sort of brought up to me, you know, over the course of the, you know, thousands of conversations we've had about this that I was unaware of, and that you've always been very critical of eyewitness testimony. Yeah, I mean, juries tend to put a lot of weight on it. You know, I think most people would say, if someone saw you do it, you're guilty. Right. But what most people don't understand is that about 4,500 innocent people are convicted every year in the United States based on mistaken eyewitness identification. So in fact, mistaken eyewitness identification is responsible for more wrongful convictions than all other reasons combined. The American Judicature Society found that 75% of the first 183 DNA exonerations were mainly due to eyewitness misidentification. So a lot of people think of our memories being almost like a video recording. If we're just able to access that recording, all of the information will be available to us. And as an extension of this, the information that is recorded in our memory must be accurate. Unfortunately, that's not the case. There has actually been quite a bit of research about memory in general and about the memory of eyewitnesses in particular that indicates our memories are quite malleable and vulnerable to things like suggestion. Elizabeth Loftus is a very well-known American psychologist who is probably considered the expert on human memory. She has done numerous studies looking at the reliability, or shall I say the unreliability, of eyewitness testimony. Loftus's studies have routinely shown that memory is subject to many factors, and in the context of an eyewitness to a crime, the ways that people are questioned about what they witnessed can have a significant impact on the way they remember the event. One of her early studies looked at how individuals recalled a car accident they witnessed. She found that the way people were asked about the incident significantly impacted not only how they reported the details of what they witnessed, but their very memories themselves. For example, when the participants were asked how fast the cars were going when they collided, they indicated significantly lower speeds than if they were asked how fast the cars were going when they smashed. So basically the same question, but with the change of only one word, it really changed how people recalled the event. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I got into a car wreck with uh, my best friend at the time back in high school. And what had happened was we had sort of skidded off the road. Um, It's actually a much longer story, but we had sort of (laughs) skidded off the road and he crashed his car into the side of a house. And I was listening to people who were witnesses to what had happened as they were describing to police officers the occurrence. And it was sort of looking back on it. I mean, it wasn't funny at the time, but looking back on it now, one of the guys was like, they came down this road doing 100 miles an hour. And the funny thing was, is that the, the little street that we went down wasn't even close 
to being long enough for us to accelerate to 100 miles an hour. Yeah. You know, but, you know, his perception was that we were really going fast, like 100 miles an hour. And it's like we were we took a turn from a dead stop right. and then rent down this little street. So there's no way we were going that fast. We were going less than half that. But I think that's a great example of how perception isn't reality, right? right. Right. And so, you know, we know that the way that questions are asked are is one way that memories can be influenced, but we know that there are also several other factors that impact an eyewitness's memory of a crime. One that Loftus found in her research was what is called unconscious transference. This occurs when a witness identifies a person they have seen in passing in another context as being the perpetrator of a crime. The thought is that if the witness sees this person's face as part of something like a police lineup, their brain will recognize it as familiar and then infer that it was the person they saw at the crime scene. Now, this is not something the witness is doing intentionally. It's just a mistake. But it is a mistake that can potentially ruin someone's life. And this is just one type of mistake that can occur. Other research suggests that faces that are considered more plain or average tend to be more difficult to recall than those which are highly unique or particularly attractive or unattractive. Another factor that can impact eyewitness memory is something called own race bias, which is also sometimes referred to as cross-race effect. What researchers have found is that in general, people are better at identifying faces of individuals who are their same race rather than another race, or in other words, witnesses are more likely to misidentify people from different races or ethnic groups. Research suggests that own race bias accounts for a significant amount of misidentifications. And again, this is not something people are conscious of. And researchers have found that this phenomena occurs across cultures and countries. The theory behind own race bias is something called the differential experience hypothesis. This theory basically states that people tend to have more experience and therefore more familiarity with people of their same race, and as a result are better at discerning facial features and characteristics. Similarly, it posits that people who have more meaningful contact with people of other races are less likely to engage in own race bias. We know that in this case, Jennifer Thompson was white and her assailant was black. Of course, we can't say for sure that own race bias was what was responsible for her misidentification of Ronald Cotton, but it is certainly a possible contributing factor. There has actually been a lot of research looking at police lineups, both live lineups and photo lineups, and how these impact eyewitness memory. And they found that the way these are conducted can have a significant impact on memory. One concern is that in many lineups in the past, the officers conducting the lineup were the same ones who set it up. So that means these officers already knew who the real suspect was. While I think it would be hard-pressed to find an officer who says they outright told the witness who the suspect was, there have been cases where officers provided subtle, even unconscious cues to witnesses, which influenced them to pick the suspect rather than one of the foils or like the other people that are there that aren't the suspect. Ah, okay. As a result, it is now suggested that police lineups be double blind, meaning that the officer conducting the lineup have no idea who the real suspect is. Well, so when I went to go do that photo lineup, that was something that this uh, detective did. It was a male detective. He laid out the pictures and they were in a little folder, basically. Mm -hmm. And then he left the room and then he didn't come back for another five minutes. Instead, his partner, 
who was a female detective, was the one floating around while I was looking at the pictures. So I don't know if that was something they did deliberately, maybe to avoid bias or... Yeah, it's possible. I mean, because that's one of the things that they want officers to be aware of. Right. So additionally, officers should tell witnesses that the suspect may not be in the lineup. When they state or imply that the suspect is there, a witness may feel either like they need to identify someone or it may lead them to be more confident in the person that they choose. And this is important because of something called commitment bias. In commitment bias, the witness will continue to choose the face they identified initially, even if it's the wrong one. And they may be even more confident that a person is the perpetrator as time goes on, which is interesting because in general, our memories get worse over time, not better. So police really need to do what they can to reduce the risk a witness will misidentify a suspect from the get-go. Additionally, police should record a witness's statement verbatim during the lineup. This allows juries or judges to have an accurate account of how certain a witness was during that first identification. Some other problems that have been identified with lineups in the past have been around choosing foils or those people in the lineup who are not the suspect. So if a witness says the person they saw was six foot two, it was a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes, and they have a person they suspect who fits that description, they don't want to fill the rest of the lineup with people who look very different from that person. Right. Instead, they want all of the individuals to be homogenous and that they share those same general characteristics, but they don't want them to look too similar as that could increase the risk of misidentification. There's also been research on whether photos in lineups should be presented sequentially, you know, one at a time, or simultaneously where all the photos are presented at once. And while there's been some split in the research, the Innocence Project says that lineups should be sequential, so there's not the risk that a person will pick the photo that looks most like the suspect compared to the others. When it comes to lineups, you want the person who did it, not the person who looks like the person who did it. So the Department of Justice Office of Justice Programs put out a research report called Eyewitness Evidence, a Guide for Law Enforcement in 1999 that goes over many of these recommendations. And we'll have a link to this if you're interested in reading more. Others have also advocated for these recommendations to be implemented, including the Innocence Project, as I mentioned. I think that our justice system in the United States is very good. I think that there are a lot of good elements to it yeah sure um but you know i think that there are certainly things that we need to look at and we need to consider and and make improvements to and i think one of the areas is this reliance on eyewitness testimony um in the way that we conduct lineups right and you know in the way that we question eyewitnesses as well well i think that that has happened sort of naturally with the advances in technology i mean if you have something like a fight, let's say, or a crime that is occurring, it's generally very, very common for somebody who's witnessing that to pull out their phone and start taping it. That's a good point. You yeah. Know, so we see a lot of that. And I think a lot of police officers, while initially very hesitant to adopt uh, body cams, um, realize that, you know what, this also helps to protect them. It doesn't, you know, this can be used against them, obviously, what they what is picked up on body cams that police officers wear. But they also realize that if they did not do anything wrong, if they are doing their jobs as well as they should be doing their jobs, these body cameras will prove that. 
right? And it's not a matter of, well, their testimony versus the testimony of somebody that they're having an altercation with or that they're arresting or whatever, but this is actual objective proof. Right. right? It's something that juries and judges can review for themselves. And, you know, I think a lot of people like bag on people for recording everything, but I, I think that that's a good point, that it could be used as evidence and help to reduce the reliance just on eyewitness memory. Well, I think that, you know, again, and not just that somebody standing around is taping it, but just the the use of, you know, security cameras in general has increased. Yeah. You know, multiple, multiple times. And so we have thousands and thousands and thousands of, of security cameras that businesses use and Anymore, you know, when they're looking for somebody, a suspect or something, they usually have some form of security footage somewhere that was taken of this person or of this incident. Yeah, and I I think that that helps. I think, you know, DNA is such a fantastic science. And although there can be times when that is even misused or misinterpreted, I think that it has really helped to exonerate a lot of people who were wrongfully convicted and can also help us to be more sure when it is present that we are getting the right person. You know, one of the drawbacks with all of these recordings or DNA is what happens in cases where those things aren't present. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people have criticized this whole like CSI effect where now juries expect that level of evidence and maybe less willing to convict people when it's not present. So, you know, it's just very interesting, and I I think it's a worthwhile discussion to have when we're looking at the justice system and considering how our culture influences things, how racial prejudice, how our own biases, our own perceptions can impact that. Because at the end of the day, we want our justice system to be accurate. Well, we want it to be just. Yeah, (laughs) it's not just if innocent people are being convicted and punished. And so, you know, it will be interesting to see wrongful conviction rates prior to DNA compared to what they are once that's, you know, been available to us. But, you know, we hope that we're doing things, making changes in the right direction where we're reducing the risk of wrongful convictions going forward. So we're going to wrap this episode up, but as I mentioned, we'll have some links to some of the things we discussed on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also email us from there if you have an episode idea for season four. We have some great ideas that were suggested by several of our listeners already, so we're very excited to get started on those, but we still have some room for additional episodes, so please send us your ideas. And, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you all for listening this season. We're so grateful for all of our listeners and for all of the emails and messages you guys have sent us. And, you know, we just want to let you know that we appreciate you and we love hearing from you. And, you know, make sure that you've subscribed to the podcast because there might just be some bonus content that we're releasing during the break. I'm not making any promises, but (laughs) something we've thrown around. So uh, David and I appreciate you all, and and we can't wait to be back for season four, which we're hoping to launch in just a couple of short months. I just wanted to reiterate what Jessica said. Thanks again for listening and for taking the time to reach out to us. We love doing the podcast. It is a lot of work, obviously, because we do need to take breaks from it from time to time, but We do love doing it, and everybody that appreciates our work, it just adds fuel to that. So thanks again, and uh, we will see you next season. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, 
and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.